Is anyone glad the election is over? I, I, I barely even pay attention to anything that goes on in elections these days, and yet i got to tell you, even this time, I just got completely sick of it. The mailers, the ads on TV, the stuff on the radio, just over and over and over again. If I ever get another piece of mail from Bob Corker or Harold Ford, I might just, I don't know what I'm going to do. It just drove me nuts. But you know, I guess that sort of thing is all necessary. If you're going to have an election, you've got to have campaigns. Campaigns are precise instruments designed to purchase our votes, to get us to vote for someone or something or against someone or against something. Millions of dollars are spent in order to buy our votes, in order to get us to vote for someone. Professional ad writers are hired, paid big money, in order to make candidates look good. Professional speech writers are hired and brought in in order to verbalize the platform of the campaign in just the right way. Professional coaches are hired to come in so that a candidate can answer any and all questions that might ever come up without even having a drop of perspiration. Campaigns are designed to win elections. And even just a small error can cost thousands of votes and be the deciding factor about who is going to be the one that was recorded in the history books as the winner and who is going to be the forgotten loser. This morning, I'd like to talk to you about a bungled campaign. Were you aware that Jesus came to the earth in order to be a king? He wanted that political title, coming to be king of the earth. How would you go about doing something like that? What kind of campaign would you run so that you could be king of the world? According to the modern gurus of campaigns today, they would tell us that Jesus bungled his campaign. I want us to take a look at how a campaign like this ought to be run according to the modern advisors and then recognize what Jesus did. I'm going to warn you, I've been doing the best all weekend since about Thursday night to lose my voice. So I think I'm going to be able to make it today. I feel a lot better than I did Thursday and Friday night up in Chattanooga. But if I start coughing or anything, just be patient with me. We'll get back to it as soon as I can. Jimmy might have to have an extra song ready in case I need to let him lead one or something. But we'll make it through this morning. Before we get into the lesson, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you and we're thankful for your son who died for us. We're thankful that you have placed him on the throne of your kingdom, that he is at your right hand that He is our King and our Sovereign Ruler and our Judge and our Benefactor. We're thankful for Your mercy and Your love. We're thankful for Your truth and Your righteousness. Father, help us this morning as we take a look at how Your Son lived in this world to understand what made Him so successful so that we might follow in His footsteps and also be successful in Your kingdom. Father, we pray for this congregation that You would bless us, that we might spread the borders of Your kingdom that your kingdom would go throughout the entire world, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us, Father, because we haven't always allowed your kingdom to be in our hearts. Help us to escape the tempter snares, to overcome the will of the devil. Help us to honor and glorify you, loving you, doing your will at all times. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. Well, if Jesus were going to 
rely on advisors today, one of the very first things that they would tell them is you've got to maximize your image. In any campaign that you're going to have, in any election, you've got to maximize the candidate's image. Where did he come from? What has he accomplished? What kind of education does he have? What is his background? And we've, we've got to look at all of these things and we've got to lift up all of the good qualities and, and make him almost bigger than life. And of course, any of the dirt that we might find there, any of the skeletons in the closet, we've got to minimize those. We've got to figure out how to do damage control. We've got to hide any of that possible dirt so that we can maximize the image of the candidate. Now, if you think about this, when it comes to Jesus, God the Son being king on the earth, who has more ability to maximize his image than Jesus? And yet, that's not what Jesus did. If you look in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul wrote in Philippians 2 and verse 7, as he talked about Jesus coming to the world, he said he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's the New American Standard. The King James, or the New King James, I believe, says, made himself of no reputation. Instead of coming into the world and maximizing his image so that he could be king, he came into the world and made himself of no reputation. He came among the Jews, a little backwards, backwater country that was, for hundreds of years, had constantly been overrun by the enemies, but not only did he come as one of them, he came as even the lowest of the low. In John chapter 1 and verse 46, we learn about the fact that he came from Nazareth. And you remember what Nathaniel said about that? In John 1:46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Not much to play on there from the background. Can anything good come from there? He wasn't maximizing his image. He didn't come into the world as the son of emperors or not even as the son of a governor. He came into the world as the son of a carpenter. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55, the people question, isn't this the carpenter's son? And not just any carpenter. He wasn't really the son of a very successful carpenter. He was the son of a very poor carpenter. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 24, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 24, it says that when they went to present Jesus in the temple, they offered the sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That was the sacrifice that the poorest of the poor would offer because they couldn't offer the uh, bigger sacrifices because they couldn't afford them. So he came as a carpenter's son and as a poor carpenter's son. He didn't really have a good television appearance. He certainly wouldn't do good on the public media and the advertising campaigns and the billboards because according to prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, he wasn't much to look at. In Isaiah 53 and verse 2 it says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus didn't come putting on a handsome face and a winsome smile so that everyone would be attracted to him and look at him and say, Oh, there is the man who ought to be king. In fact, when we looked at his appearance, we thought that he was despised by the Lord. And as far as the dirt, was the dirt covered up? Well, I think there's indication that it wasn't in John chapter 8 and verse 41. In John chapter 8 and verse 41, as Jesus is talking to the Jews, He told them, You are doing the deeds of your Father. This is John 8, 41. And they said to Him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. 
I think the reason why they make that comment is because it was known that Jesus was born to a woman who wasn't married. And they say, hey, we weren't the ones born of fornication. Now, you and I both know Jesus wasn't born of fornication, but these guys certainly didn't believe he was born as the incarnate deity. They didn't do damage control. They didn't cover it up. It's just there. This is just who Jesus was. He didn't maximize his image. What a bungled campaign. The modern campaign gurus just hang their heads and shake it. How could Jesus ever possibly hope to accomplish anything and ever become king of the world if he's going to run such an awful and shoddy campaign? The second thing they would tell him, you need to assemble powerful supporters. If you're going to run for any type of election, you've got to assemble powerful supporters. You've got to get people who are going to back you, who are going to give you endorsements. You're going to have to get in with the business leaders. You're going to have to smooth the union reps. It's not going to hurt to get in the pockets of the politically powerful. And of course, it probably would even help you if you've got a, the religiously powerful to support you. If you're going to run for a campaign, whether it's for president or for local sheriff, you've got to get powerful supporters. But that's not what Jesus did. In fact, Jesus seemed to almost go out of His way to turn the powerful against Him. In Luke chapter 13, in Luke chapter 13 and verse 32, Luke 13 and verse 32, they said something about Herod. Jesus could have done well to get Herod, king of the Jews, on his side. But instead, in Luke chapter 13 and verse 32, he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. You don't get powerful supporters by calling them names. In Matthew chapter 23, instead of appealing to the religiously powerful in his day, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13, it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse uh, verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. And on he goes. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's calling the religiously powerful hypocrites, blind guides. He's not, he's not assembling the powerful to support his campaign the kingdom. In fact, if we look in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4, we find out the kind of people that he assembled. In Acts 4 verse 13, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Jesus didn't assemble the powerful, the educated elite. He assembled the uneducated, the untrained, and gathered them around him in order to help him become king. How amazing is that? And not only did he just happen to assemble these uneducated, untrained men, think about how flawed they were. These guys were always arguing with one another. They were very rash. Their leader was always sticking his foot in in his mouth. And even after Jesus was resurrected, at first they didn't even believe How could Jesus get anywhere with such a bungled campaign? The modern gurus just hang their heads and shake them. How could Jesus ever expect to accomplish anything? How could he expect to become king if he is not going to assemble powerful supporters? 
The third thing they would say is offer instant rewards. Tell the people that you'll give them what they want, or at least sound like you're going to give them what they want. In fact, speak in such a way so that everybody listening to you thinks that you're telling them that you're going to give them exactly what they want, and that they're going to get it as soon as you possibly can give it to them. Offer them instant rewards. That's the approach that Abimelech used in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Abimelech, boy, he ran a smooth campaign. In 2 Samuel, Abimelech, Absalom. Absalom ran a smooth campaign. In 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 2, it says that Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say to him, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put it on his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. There's a smooth campaign. Offer instant reward. Somebody comes up and says, oh, here's my complaint. Oh, listen, I wish I could be judged because I, I would do justice for you. His opponent comes by ten minutes later and what's he say? The exact same thing. Oh, I wish somebody would make me judge because I would provide justice. Offer instant rewards. Promise to give them what they want. Is that what Jesus did? No. In fact, Jesus offered a distant reward. He said that what's going to happen in the immediate future is pretty bad. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In chapter 10, beginning at verse 34... Matthew 10 and verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And in Luke 9, 23, he repeats that sentiment as he points out, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. These folks understood what it meant to take up your cross. It meant that you were walking resolutely to your execution. This is what Jesus offered. Persecution, martyrdom, execution, denial of self. You don't get what you want, you give up what you want. And when we take a look at one of the most political moments in Jesus' career in John chapter 6 when the people had followed, him, had followed Him because He had given them food, all He had to do was just offer them food again and they were going to try to make Him king. But instead, beginning in verse 22, He offered them hard and difficult teaching. And in John chapter 6, in verse 66 it says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. What a bungled campaign. How could Jesus ever expect, even hope, to accomplish anything? How could he expect to become king? 
And the modern campaign viewers just hang their heads and they shake it in disappointment. How could Jesus accomplish anything if he won't offer instant rewards? If you won't offer instant rewards, at least don't offend people. This is really simple. People who are offended won't support you. So whatever you do, whatever you say, don't offend them. Make them like you. Because folks who like you, even if they don't necessarily agree with you, they might go ahead and vote for you. They might go ahead and be behind you. So, so even if you, if you can't offer them exactly what they want, at least don't offend them. We've already seen what he did to Herod, that fox. The religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Interestingly, if you look in Matthew 15, in Matthew 15, the disciples even said something to him about offending the leaders once. It said in Matthew 15 and verse 12, And the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Jesus can sit back and say, Oh no, I've offended them. Oh, that's terrible. Let me go do damage control. Let me go fix this. He says, They're just blind guides of the blind. I can't help it if they're going to get offended. But perhaps what is most surprising to us is not how, how he dealt with these enemies, but how he even dealt with supporters. We've already talked about John chapter 6. The folks were following him. They wanted to make him king. But instead of allowing it to happen, he gave them all sorts of difficult and strange teaching. And in John chapter 6 and verse 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. And he goes on and continues with difficult teaching. And we've already read verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. He even offended his own disciples. John chapter 8 and verse 31 in John 8 and verse 31, it says, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him. He's talking to those who believed Him. He said, if you continue in My Word, then you're truly disciples of Mine. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And this didn't set well with those who believed Him. They answered Him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus didn't start doing damage control. He started talking to them about how they were enslaved to the devil. And in 28 verses, the folks who believed him wanted to stone him. Verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What a bungled campaign. Everybody knows if you want to run a campaign, don't offend people. But Jesus went about offending people all the time. Even his own supporters. And the modern campaign doers just hang their heads and they shake it. In despair and discouragement, how can Jesus possibly hope to ever accomplish anything? How can he hope to be king? He's going to go about offending people. And finally, and this one's akin to assembling powerful supporters, but you've got to pander to the wealthy. Campaigns take money. If you want to be elected to office, it's going to cost something. Billboards cost money. Yard signs cost money. Mailers and ads on the radio and TV, they cost money. Campaign trips in order to have 
meetings with supporters takes money. And so we've got to have those wealthy people who are willing to come to the five to $10,000 per dinner fundraising suppers. We've got to have people that are willing to dip into their pockets and hand the money over. So whatever you do, even if you have to compromise on your principles a little bit, make sure to get those wealthy people on your side because you're not going to get elected if you don't have some money backing the campaign. But that's not what Jesus did at all. In fact, Jesus seemed to turn the wealthy away from him. In Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew chapter 19, and verse 22, he sent the rich young ruler away from him grieving. It says, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus went on to say, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 41, there was Jesus sitting in the temple and He saw the treasure and He saw all these rich people and instead of commenting on how wonderful the rich people were for all the money that they put in, He commented on a little widow lady who gave two copper coins that amounted to a cent. He said, and sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned and all she had to live on. Jesus didn't pander to the wealthy. He honored the poor. And in fact, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, in Luke chapter 4, and verse 18, we find out that his entire ministry was really for the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. How could Jesus ever accomplish anything? with such a bungled campaign. The modern campaign doers just hang their head and they shake it in discouragement. How are they ever going to be king? He won't pander to the wealthy. And yet here's the key. He did become king. He is king. Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. Acts chapter 2 And verse 33 says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. In verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He has become King. How did it happen? He didn't maximize His image. He didn't assemble powerful supporters. He didn't offer instant reward. He he did offend people and He did not pander to the wealthy. How did he make it? I'll tell you how. He had a heavenly campaign manager. He made it because he didn't follow the advice of the earthly wise. He simply did the will of his Father in heaven. Whatever God said, that's what he would do. And he became king. In John chapter 5, John chapter 5. 
verse 30. John chapter 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John chapter 8 and verse 28. John chapter 8 and verse 28. So Jesus said in John 8, 28, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. John 12, 49 and 50. John 12, verse 49 and 50. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what, I, as to, what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. It's whatever God says. And in Matthew chapter 26, in verse 39, we find the one instance where what Jesus wanted was not exactly what the Father wanted. But what did He pray? My Father, this is Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as You will. Even when the Father asked things of Him that He didn't want. Hard things. He followed the will of God in heaven. According to the worldly, Jesus offered a bungled campaign. And yet He became King. And He is King to this day. And He will be King till the end of time when He returns, calls us home, and delivers up the kingdom to His Father. Why? Because He did the Father's will no matter what. Do you want to be part of His kingdom? How are we going to live in our bid for election? In 2 Peter, chapter 1. 2 Peter, chapter 1, and verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Some translations there, be all the more certain about His election. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. What are we doing in our bid for election? To reign with Christ. The worldly will give us all kinds of advice. They'll tell us all kinds of things that we like to hear. But if we want to rule and reign with Christ, we've got to follow the heavenly campaign manager. Follow God's will and do that. John 18.36, Jesus said He came to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. In Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who are lost. Do you want to be a part of the lost who have been saved? A part of that kingdom not of this world? There's only one way. God's way. Follow His management and you'll win.